If you have a Bible, uh, turn to the book of Acts in the New Testament, chapter 19. Uh, if you find verse 21, that's where we're going to start this morning. Let's jump in. Um, we're in Acts 19, and we've been looking um, in the book of Acts, uh, and we're in the city of Ephesus, ancient Ephesus, in the early church. That's where they are. The last few weeks, we've been looking at selections of the book of Acts where they're in the city called Ephesus. So just a review. You'll recall, like two weeks ago, um, were you here? Think about it. Were you here? Do you, remember, do you remember the message, almost Christian? So what happened there, right? Like Paul came to Ephesus, and, and it was when he first got there. And, and he encountered these 12, um, they were called disciples. They were really just, they knew about the baptism of John the Baptist. They weren't fully Christians. And he led them to the Lord. So, so we can relate with that, right? Hello? I mean, have you ever been around people that are around Christians, that talk like Christians, but maybe they aren't yet actually a Christian, almost Christians? We talked about how it's really helpful to be like Paul and get beneath the superficial and ask people questions about what they believe and share the gospel with them. And so I would encourage you not to just be a hearer of the word, but a doer. Who are you over the holidays going to share the gospel with? Who is an almost Christian in your life, maybe that God would have you talk to and love them and share with them about Christ? So then we looked the next week at this last week, again, in Ephesus, and the title was You Better Recognize. And we saw in that passage God's extraordinary, miraculous ministry through the hands of the Apostle Paul. And what God was doing was recognizing Paul saying, this is an apostle. Follow him. Listen to him. Read his letters. Read the Bible. And we challenged ourselves. And I want to remind you again, you know, the way that the Ephesians responded with confession and repentance. That they brought their practices and their possessions, some of them that were related to their former life of sin, and they burned them. So I just challenge you, You know, was there last week, as you prayed about it and reflected, was there a possession or practice, which at one time was of great value to you, like the Ephesians? But the Lord is convicting you and saying to you, it's time to part ways with that thing so that you can mature in your faith. And so I just bring these up. You're like, why are you bringing up past sermons? Because sometimes we don't apply it. We just move on to Monday. And so I just want to not rush. You know, these are great passages in Acts. Let's not rush. Let's slow down and pray and say, God, what, how are you challenging me to grow? And this week is no different. So, so again, think about it. We're in Ephesus, right? So think about what's happening here. The, Paul is there for two years. He rents out the, the lecture hall there. He's preaching the word every day. The Christians in Ephesus are purifying their lives. They're bringing their their things, and they're saying, God wants me to get rid of this and this, and they're burning it, and the church is getting pure. The word is going forth. And so what do you think is happening? Like, amazing stuff is happening. Verse 20 captures that. It says in Acts 19, verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All right? Now, what do you think Satan thinks about that? What is his reaction? And, you know, we do believe in Satan. What is his reaction when the church is purifying herself? The people of God are saying, I'm done with this foolishness. I want to follow Jesus. And 
The word is being seriously followed and preached every day. What is, what is Satan's reaction? What is the world's reaction? I tell you, predictably, what comes next in this passage this morning, verse 21 through 41, is a great opposition to the progress and word of God. And so let's read it. Acts 19, 21 through 41. I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray. So Acts 19, verse 21. It's a good long passage. Are you ready? All right, focus. Ready? All right. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. Verse 30, But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours... They all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's quickly pray. God, we thank you for this uh, part of the book of Acts, and we thank you, God, for giving us life and breath and time this morning to consider um, not our own thoughts, Lord, but the thoughts that come to us 
from the truth of your word. Lord, we pray that you would free us in our hearts of the grip of idolatry. Lord, help us not to just see this as a story back then, but to see it as our story now. So Lord, we pray as we sang this morning, come let us adore him, that we in our heart of hearts would adore Jesus Christ and worship our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Idolatry, riots, and the gospel. That's the focus today, all right? That's the focus. So um, here's what I want to say as we get into this. You saw this guy in the story, Demetrius the silversmith. He was really ticked off about Christianity because he said that it's becoming known everywhere by this guy, Paul, that's how he said it, that the gods made with hands are no gods at all. Do you remember that part? So what's interesting about that is we are actually sort of eavesdropping on what a non-Christian, that's Demetrius, um, is saying that he perceives to be the main message of Christianity. Does that make sense? So like, so like Demetrius, what's Christianity about? And he's like, well, what they're saying everywhere is that the gods made by hands are no gods at all. In other words, and this is what we're to kind of take from that, that, that you know, a central aspect of the message of Christianity is its confrontation in the world and in our hearts with idolatry. And if you read the Old Testament, it's all through the Old Testament. Idolatry, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Idolatry. You say, what is idolatry? Isn't that something from the distant past, you know, where like really sort of uneducated, like simple people bow down to statues? Like, isn't that what idolatry is? Let's not, let's not think that way, all right? It's important that we not relegate the practice of idolatry to back then, idolatry is about our hearts. The things that the people of Ephesus wanted to get from their goddess Artemis are the same things that we want in our hearts. Security, status, standing, purpose, meaning, community, family, these things. You know, a helpful book on idolatry, it's really helpful. It's a small book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. I would just commend it to you to read. Let me read you one quote from the book. He says, an idol, listen, an idol is whatever you look at other than God in your heart of hearts. And you say, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value then I'll feel significant and secure, right? So an idol, what is idolatry? An idol can be anything, right? It could be a really bad thing, quote unquote bad, right? Like on the naughty list, it could be, but it could be a good thing. It could be a good thing that in your heart you've made into a God thing. It could be, right? It could be family. It could be career. It could be security. It could be friends. It could even be church. The gospel promise of an idol is if you have me in your life, you're okay. You're good. We all struggle with idolatry. 
And that's what this passage is about, and that's why it's important to sort of come around this idea of idolatry. You know, Tim Keller's definition is nice, but another one could be Mariah Carey when she sings, I can't live if living is without you. You know, it's the thing that you look to and you say that. I can share a personal story of an idol in my life is Thanksgiving Day leftover turkey. I mean, like, if something happens at the end of the Thanksgiving meal, let's just say my wife is feeling really generous and she gives leftover containers to all our guests. And they all leave. And then I look and there's no leftover turkey. Total meltdown. Not cool. I can't live if living is without that. Um, you know, turkey sandwich is very important to me right after, you know, that night, the next day. Um, again, I joke. And I share that one because it's humorous. But it's also not funny because there are things that have us. We often can be in the grip of our idols. They are our master. We serve them. They've got us. Our unyielding emotions point to what our idols, in fact, are. So here, I want to share this verse with you from Romans, because this really gets, gets at it, because Paul, who's in the story, actually, there's only two verses in this story about Paul, but, but it says ministry in Ephesus that, is, that they're talking about. And so here's a verse, Romans 1.16. Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, pause, the gospel. For the good news of Jesus, not Athena in Athens, not Artemis in Ephesus, not my family or your family, not friends, not America, not football, not career, not grades, not acceptance, not popularity. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That was Paul's message, and that's why people like Demetrius were saying, this guy is convincing the world that gods made by hands are not gods. So now with this understanding of both ancient and contemporary idolatry, let's go through this passage with four points. And the first one is the freedom from idolatry. So look with me at verse 21 and 22. We might ask as we look at this point, what does freedom from idolatry look like? You know, these two verses right here, 21 and 22, most people would like be like, that, that's just the intro to the real story. Um, that's just some sort of notes about Paul's travels before we get to verse 23 where the story starts. But let's not do that. Let's understand how this relates really to this whole theme of idolatry because I think what we see in these verses is a glimpse of a Christian, a Christian that you could be, a Christian that I could be, who is free from idolatry. So, so again, look at verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit. This is Paul's ambition to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, he got rid of his helpers. He himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, let me just show you what's happening here. Let me show you a map. So Paul's in Ephesus, and he's like, all right, what I want to do, we see in verse 21, his ambition. 
He's like, what I want to do is I want to leave Ephesus. I want to get in a boat. I want to go over to what is called Macedonia. That's today, that's Greece. And then I want to go back down south on that little part of land to what is called Achaia, which is Corinth. And then I want to go from there to Jerusalem, and then I want to go to all the way to Rome. But if you read other parts of the New Testament, and this is just a little extra steady time, we'll give you this, you realize what Paul is doing. He's collecting an offering. He's going around and he's collecting an offering from these new Christian churches for the famine-stricken, impoverished saints in Jerusalem. Why does that matter? Well, listen, I'll read to you. Like, like let me just show you in Scripture where, where we see this. In 2 Corinthians 8, he's, he's writing to the Corinthians from Ephesus. He's probably in Ephesus writing Corinthians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So he's writing to Corinth saying, the people to the north of you in Macedonia, this is what is happening there. Verse 2, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity giving on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, on their own accord. Okay, verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the, here it is, the key thing, relief of the saints. Do you see what Paul was doing? He was collecting a relief offering for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. But what he wanted to do is that it was way more than money. Listen, this is actually a really key thing for understanding a lot of the New Testament. Paul wanted so badly to collect this offering from these new Gentile churches and bring it to Jerusalem, to the Jewish Christian church that was famine-stricken, and say, this is from your Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one in Christ. They love you. Unity. That was Paul's, he was so fired up about that. And so we see in verse 21 what his travel plans are. His ambition is to go pick up the parts of the offering, go to Jerusalem, but then he's not done. He's like, after that, I'm not done. I want to go to Rome. I want to take the gospel to Rome. So again, the point here is the freedom from idolatry. We see that Paul, as a Christian, and this could be us, is living with this freedom from the love of money, freedom from selfishness as relates to his own personal agenda in life. Money, personal ambition, given to the Lord. Now, Paul once was enslaved to idolatry. Selfish ambition. Pharisaical self-righteousness. He was once so threatened by Christians, like Demetrius in our story. Paul can relate to him. Paul was once so threatened by Christians that he wanted them all arrested and killed, and he did kill some. Yet now he relies on Christ's righteousness alone to be good, to be okay. Now his personal ambition is to generously love, serve, and travel, and bless the global Christian church. Freedom from idolatry looks like this. And it looks very different from what we're about to see in the second point, which is the threat to idolatry as we look at Demetrius. 
So question, does the gospel threaten our idols? Oh, yes, it does. And that for us this morning is good to remind ourselves of, to remind our hearts of, that your Christian life, your devotion to Christ, is not buddies with your idols. The gospel is a threat to idols. Demetrius knows it. We must remember it too. Look at verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, remember that early Christianity was called the way. It was a label for the church. It was probably in reference to Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? So they were called the way. So no little disturbance started to happen concerning the way. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Now, Artemis was one of the the gods, one of the Greek gods, the, the goddess of the hunt or of fertility. And, you know, the cult of Artemis at this time, it's important to know that this was not some little, you know, some little like cultish skirmish that was irrelevant to the whole world. No, the cult of Artemis was the biggest in the world at the time. And and Demetrius, he either made miniature statues of Artemis or he made little miniature replicas of the temple of Artemis made out of silver. And he made them for people for their homes so they could have their gods in their homes. And this was big business. Don't picture like the, you know, don't picture like the street vendor with the trinkets who probably is also homeless. Don't picture that. Picture a businessman who's getting very wealthy off of this, because that's what he says. In fact, Demetrius is going to outline four problems that he has with Christianity. One is money. Two is the reputation of his trade. Three is that the temple in Ephesus could be counted as nothing because of Christianity. And four, that their God, Artemis, would be toppled. Is he right to be afraid of that? Yes, he is. Because the gospel is a threat idolatry. Verse 25, so he gathers together the people in his trade with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is, here's the key, danger, threat. There is danger. Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Let me show you a couple of pictures. So here's first a picture of a statue of Artemis, a bronze statue in the New York Metropolitan Museum from the first century. And so the goddess of fertility, the goddess of the hunt. Here is a rendering of the temple of Artemis. Um, It no longer stands, but this is what it would have looked like. We know it had 127 pillars. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was larger than an NFL football field. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world next to like the pyramids. 
And here's the thing. Think about this for a second. I know we're in the story, right? But let's zoom out from the story and think about the writer, the author Luke, writing to the early church and to us. What's his point right now? What's his point? His point was to show that the Christian gospel was a threat to the largest cult of its day, not according to Christians, but according to the adherents of the cult of Artemis. A threat to idolatry. The word of God and the gospel is a major threat to idolatry. Satan knows it. The world feels it. And that's why there's such great opposition when the word begins to be faithfully proclaimed and Christians begin to get serious about the Lord and purify their lives. As the gospel opened people's eyes and hearts in Ephesus and in Asia, the cult of Artemis was being put out of business. Many believe that this was the time in Ephesus in what is modern-day Turkey when the seven churches in Revelation were all planted. A great advance of the word of God and a great attack by Satan. Imagine what that would be like. That the word of God is proclaimed so consistently and faithfully and the people of God are purifying their lives and, and getting serious about their walk with the Lord. And as a result... Sectors of immorality and unethical practices in our city are going out of business. The threat to idolatry. Worship of Jesus and worship of idols cannot coexist in the human heart. One will win, and Jesus is the true and living God, so he will win. If you want to threaten idolatry, lift up the truth of God's word. The way to transform a city is not to go out and try to bash all the idols. No. It's to lift up the word of God and Jesus Christ and change the individual hearts of people. So a recap, freedom from idolatry. Now, threat to idolatry. And now the confusion of idolatry. Does idolatry leave people confused? Yes. Do we get confused when our idols are threatened? The idols of our hearts? Yes, we get very anxious and confused. This section about confusion says the word confusion twice. It begins and ends with the chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I don't know how they did it, but that's how I do it. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus Macedonians, who were Paul's travel companions. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. We can pause for a moment there and just see a little side note. Paul, he's, he's able to take advice from other Christians. The apostle wanted to go in there. But the disciples said, we don't think it's wise. And he said, I submit to your wise counsel. 
And it's important, I think, that we even just notice, you know, you could say, well, well, it would have been such bold faith for Paul to go in there. But it could have also been a bit presumptuous for Paul to go in there. Verse 31, and even some of the Asiarchs, that's the, the, the diplomats from Rome that were stationed in Asia to make sure Asia cooperated with Rome, the Asiarchs. So look, it says, even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his, friends of who? Friends of Paul, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. What is Luke doing? Hello, what is Luke doing? He's writing Acts. What's he doing? He's signaling something. He's saying, Rome, Rome loves Christians. Rome is good with Christians. He's saying that as he's writing his, his sort of thing about Acts here, right? He's letting the readers in the early church know Christians aren't a bunch of illegal people. Christians, they bless our society. Look at verse 31. Again, we already looked at it, the Asiarchs. Verse 32. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion And most of them did not know why they had come together. We'll come back to that. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, watch this, this is funny, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. Like, this is funny because Alexander was almost famous. You know, like he gets put forward and he's like, starts to motion with his hand. And then verse 34. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay, there's a lot here. Um, First of all, Luke tells us that many of the people in this, this riot, in this mob, didn't even know why they were there. He says that in verse 32. Is that not almost always the case, though, with riots where people aren't always completely aware of what they're protesting or what's going on. Luke says that's what was happening here. You can almost picture the sidewalk interview, right, where someone, you know, like a reporter stops one of the people that's going, great is Artemis, and he says, hey, what do you think about today's events? They're like, this is a really big deal. And they're like, what do you think about Paul the silversmith? Do you think he's, he's uh, you following him? And you're like, yes, I'm following Paul the silversmith. What about uh, the apostle Demetrius? How do you think about him? He's a big threat to our city. Like, these people don't even know what's going on. Great is Artemis. And... The picture here is that idolatry confuses. Fear, peer pressure, going with the crowd, just raw emotion. You know, the same is true today. Many have given very little critical thought to the claims of Christ. Many reject Christianity because someone else told them to. Because someone else told them how great of a threat that worldview is to personal and societal welfare. And without looking into it for real themselves, they just said, amen. Let's get fired up about that. It's the mob mentality. It's the confusion of idolatry. And you know what? The word of God and the Christian gospel bring clarity. Freedom from idolatry, the threat to idolatry, the confusion of idolatry. 
And now, finally, the trouble of idolatry. Has idolatry ever gotten someone into trouble? Has idolatry ever gotten you or me into trouble? The answer is yes. Watch verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? You see, they're, they're, here they had a meteor that fell. And, and they're like, that's a, Artemis sent that to us. Let's put that in the temple. That's what they did. And they're the guardians of it. He says in verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here and are not, they are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. Watch this. Verse 40 is key. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The trouble of idolatry. What is Luke's point? Like, what is the point here? Note that the person in this story who is reasonable, the voice of reason, what does the voice of reason do here? He speaks highly of Christians. He's like, they don't steal. They don't blaspheme. They're not doing anything illegal. He shows that it's those who are in the grip of their idols who are causing the trouble. He says, for we, we really are in danger of being charged, being charged, trouble, legal trouble with rioting. So this story starts out accusing Christians of trouble, but here we see that the real legal trouble is for the mob at Ephesus. The trouble of idolatry, the trouble when we are in the grip of our idols. In fact, having idols and those idols being threatened caused these people to lose their minds. There is an enormous lack of peace in our lives and in our hearts when we are living in the grip of idolatry. Idolatry leads to trouble, but forsaking idols, naming them, confessing them, forsaking them, and putting our faith in Jesus Christ leads to peace and security. The temple of Artemis, hello, Jesus is the meeting place of man and God true temple. He is the mediator between us and God. So again, Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it, for the gospel, not Artemis, not family, not career, not America, not grades, not acceptance, 
Not whatever fill in the blank thing that we point to to say, if I've got you, I'll be okay. The gospel is the power of God for true salvation to everyone who believes, right? One more verse, Hebrews 13, 5. Let's just land right here. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, listen, he has said what Artemis and what none of the idols in our lives can say to us. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Bow with me.